millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Welcome to the Fighting on Film podcast, the podcast all about classic and obscure war movies, from the Normandy landings to the days of chivalry and swords. If it's been captured on film, we're going to try and cover it. I'm Robbie of RM Military History. I'm Matthew Moss of Historical Firearms and the Armourer's Bench. Welcome back once again to Fighting on Film, everybody. Today we bring you another stellar guest, one of the UK's leading historians, one half of the We Have Ways podcast. We welcome James Holland onto the show. Welcome, James. Hello, James. Yes. Hello. Hello. Thanks for having me on. And um, I've got a confession, mate. I know we've been trying to fix this up for several weeks and, well, <laughs> several months, actually. And and I keep having to change the date. So I'm very, very relieved to finally be here. And I'm sorry for mucking you boys around. Not at all. It's no problem. We are we're thrilled to have you on. And we are going to be talking about the 1945 Errol Flynn epic objective Burma. Yes, we are. I'm super excited about this. Gosh, what what a movie. What a movie. And, and the first thing I'd like to say about it is just how well it stands up. I mean, mm. it is amazing how often war films that were made during the war are really awful. I yeah. mean, they, they just, they're, they're wood and they're clunky. You know, the, the you know, they just look so dated. You know, the kit's wrong, the airplane's wrong, the kind of, the, the sort of faux kind of pre-CGI, CGI looks awful. Yeah, looks like exactly what it is, kind of sort of you know model on a screen, but none of that, none of that of objective Burma. It looks absolutely for real. And, yeah, it really holds boy, up. I mean, I don't know if you noticed just how well do they their um, how well do they weather their uniforms? Yeah, I mean, you know, by the end of it, they're really grimy. Mm. They're, they're sweating, aren't they? You feel hot. The way it deteriorates over time is it, real attention to detail. All the kit is correct. All the, all the all the weapons are correct. Uniforms are correct at the time. I mean, not well. Actually, probably not actually, are they? Because they're using jump parachute. And they're using US. Okay, so that, we should. Well, I'm, I'm jumping ahead here. It's no I'm problem. It's no problem. Um, <laughs> early alley tally, perhaps. So we yeah, usually yeah. we'll go through the cast a little bit. So obviously, the main man himself, the top billing, is Errol Flynn. Um, and we yeah, know yeah. that James is one of your 
your heroes. Yeah, he is. He is. Ever since I watched Dawn Patrol on a on a Friday afternoon, it was Channel Four, two o'clock Friday afternoon, while I was uh, in my last year at university, and uh, I was up at, up at Durham. I remember watching it, just thinking, "This guy is absolutely fantastic." And Dawn Patrol, for those who don't know it, is set in 1917 or something. And it's um, RFC, Royal Flying Corps. And it's sort of, it's a sort of anti-war film, but it's about the kind of sort of casual brutality of the First World War and how awful it was. Made mm. in 1939, I think. Um, huge hit at the time. Also stars Basil Rathbone and, um, and David Niven. And it's got this just immortal opening sequence where you know, you have the kind of dramatic music and then you are straight into a dogfight. And literally the first scene you see is a kind of sort of head-on shot of Errol Flynn, goggles, flying helmet, you know, um, um, sort of oil and smut all over his face, firing his machine guns at some hun. The plane sort of pirouettes and swirl around the sky and then eventually they, they touch back down and, and, and land in a surprisingly hilly place, which clearly is California, not Northern <laughs> France. And... Um, and David uh, and da- um, um, David Niven jumps out. He goes, "What ho, Courtney? Pretty hot up there." And Errol Flynn looks at him and goes, "What ho, Scotto? Pretty warm." And it's just <laughs> so fantastic. And from there on, I was absolutely hooked, and I've loved Errol Flynn ever since. And um, if for those of you who haven't read his autobiography, My Wicked Wicked Ways, I strongly recommend you do. It is the best autobiography by a movie star ever, bar none. Is that the one he was writing during filming? Because he was apparently writing a, a bit of an autobiography while he was filming Objective Burma. Uh, no, I think he was writing B-Men's, which was his novel at the time. Uh, okay, so yeah, so the source on that's a bit mistaken. He, he was very he was very conflicted because when he was a young, you know, he's obviously incredibly good looking bloke. He was very kind of, you know, he was a man's man. Mm. And... You know, he had this incredible life, sort of growing up with a son of a kind of university professor, living in Tasmania. And then, he, you know, he had itchy feet and kind of went went a roving and, and sort of started traveling the world. And he ended up running a um, um, a coconut plantation um, in somewhere like sort of Sarawak or somewhere like that um, uh, and bedded the plantation owner's wife and got sacked. And, you know, that was that. And had various adventures on ships. It did, did a bit of sort of um, slave trading as well at one point. Then um, then ended up running a cockfighting racket in Hong Kong. Uh, and eventually, kind of after sort of loads of adventures and misadventures, eventually wound his way to England, where he was sort of spotted as a good-looking young chap and, and kind of got into acting and ended up being one of the kind of main, main staples of the Northampton rep. In yeah. Northampton, most unlikely places, and from there got spotted and sent over to Hollywood. And when he was in Hollywood, you know, he was an absolute hellraiser. Kind of lived lived shared a house with David Niven. Kind of hung out. Kind of bedded lots of girls. Kind of just was a general bad boy, hugely charming, and obviously made his name with Captain Blood and um, Charge of the Light Brigade, and most famously, I suppose, um, Robin Hood, which was Technicolor, mm. 1938, 1939, something like that, was a huge global hit. I mean, you know, just on a you know, off the off the radar, made him an absolute megastar. And he just always felt that it was a bit kind of worthless, you know, that, that this is not what real men do, you know, wandering around in, in tights and stuff. There's a great scene in that where where he's doing a sort of sword fight with with, with Basil um, Basil Rathbone, who is the sheriff of Nottingham. And you see the shadow going up the staircase and all the rest of it. Mm-hmm. And Errol Flynn goes, it's injustice I hate, not Normans. And it's just, 
It's a brilliant, brilliant line. And there's lots of kind of hands on hips and putting your, you know, your head back and laughing. Whoa, ha, ha, little John. Yeah, a lot ha, of ha, that. Ha, ha, yeah. And, and it's just fantastic. And, and he was this, he was, he was kind of got increasingly tortured and increasingly took to the bottle. And then he, in, in 1942 or 43, he got accused of statutory rape by sort of having, having, um, sex with someone underage and got put on trial and although he was acquitted it absolutely yeah threw him you know it's a reputation he never got and that's where in like flynn comes from and all the rest of it and for someone like you know the whole point is is that you know he was a total julio and and he just found the whole thing just excruciating and, mm. and deeply humiliating deeply embarrassing and he took to the bottle ever more became a raging alcoholic and died in 1959 age just 50 and when he died he looked 70 i mean yeah you know this this sort of magnificent kind of embodiment of of kind of good look swashbuckling he-man with the square jaw and all the rest of him perfect teeth i mean you know it's just you know he was a wreck of a man mm -hmm. uh and it's and it's a real it's a, it's a great tragedy but but my wicked wicked ways is very funny very self-deprecating um very honest i think yeah um, he says about his, uh, uh, his later career he says like i i become a i make more money being a shadow of my former self than i did at the time you know i think mm. it's, it's all this like the self-deprecating sort of humor I, I really appreciate it but it's really refreshing to see him in a almost like a straight role he's not swashbuckling in objective burma and i think it shows him in a completely different light yes and it's quite an understated role i mean you know he he did have this sort of in his films particularly in his adventure films and his comedies for sort of you know doing the nudge nudge wink wink and kind of you know hamming it up a little bit but yeah. but he doesn't at all he plays it really really straight it's definitely one of his better roles i think mm. you know it's right up there with dawn, dawn patrol in terms of i mean he's he's absolutely brilliant in dawn patrol i think it gives him a lot more to do than some of his other films to be honest yeah and it is quite gritty, there's some challenges in there for him you know the scene where he finds jacobs um yes and it's it just stretches his legs a little bit more, I think. Mm, definitely. Yeah, the scene with Jacobs is really good, and, and so I mean, we should we should talk about the plot, shouldn't we, a little bit? Yeah, definitely. Are we, are we still are we still on the stars? I don't really it's, know any. Yeah, of the it's other no stars problem. Are, to be honest. Appearing with Flynn, we have um, Henry Hull, who is is a really famous little character actor, really really good. He was in Lifeboat, the Alfred Hitchcock oh, um, yes. thing, and he plays Mark Williams, who is the sort of Ernie Pyle slash Ernest Hemingway esque war correspondent. We also yes. have George Tobias as Corporal Gabby Gordon. He's a sort of fast-talking, funny man. He's got he gets all the funny yeah. quips. Um, and you've got William William Prince. William Prince, William Prince. as Lieutenant Jacobs. Um, and he was in Network, and it has a good cast. Um, and it's just got a, a load of uncredited roles as well. I think one of the military advisors, Major M. H. Wythe, who is in the Indian Army Burma Rifles, has a tiny little cameo at the start where he's oh yes 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 where he's doing the briefing. Yeah, he's, he's down as Major Fitzpatrick, I think. That's it. He has a sentence of information, and then that sort of he just walks off. Um, <laughs> it's. I think I think the actual production team are almost as interesting as the cast because you've got people like uh, James uh, Wong Howe, yeah, Chinese American cinematographer, Oscar winning, nominated, absolute top of his game, and then the story is credited to uh, Alba Bessie, who is a. Um, a Columbia graduate who went to Spain and fought with the Abraham Lincoln Brigade. Amazing. He later, yes, later one of the Hollywood 10 and got blacklisted. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and yeah. He, the, he was nominated for an Oscar for this picture. Wow. Yeah. Well, the script is really good, isn't it? Which yeah. is incredible. 
And interestingly um, enough, the, the screenplay is written by Ranald McDougall, who wrote Cleopatra, mm. but listeners to the show will know him for writing the screenplay for Dark of the Sun when we covered it in the Mer- Mercenary Month. So that's a nice little films. link there. Yeah, very different. So uh, the film is released in the US on the 26th of January, has a premiere in New York. And over here, 1945, yeah. And over here, it's released in September um, 21st or 22nd, um, 1945. Comes out over here and it just has its controversy from day one. So I have a retro review that I dug up from the archives. So I'll read a little bit out for us now. And it's from the Daily Herald and it's written by P.L. Manick. Um, on the 22nd of September 1945, and he says, A disarming forward for the British consumption admits this United States paratrooper exploit might have been British one, but the film has two regrettable repercussions. First, that American audiences will probably be persuaded that Burma was liberated by Americans only. And second, that the picture has already been very tactlessly shown to our own men on the spot. United States officers, in fact, have already protested against this monstrous lack of credit to our own troops. It has embarrassed them. They call it sickening and enraging. Otherwise, it is an exciting adventure of a paratrooper unit destroying a Jap radar station in the jungles of Burma. Well, yes. I mean, I, I think it's the, it's the final scene where, where there's a sort of airborne invasion by Americans um, yeah. that, that really rankles. But I don't really see there's that much wrong with the rest of it. I mean, mm. obviously, there weren't airborne troops there. So, so that we should just eventually talk about the plot. So the idea is, yeah, is that... That, that um, there's a there's a U.S. airborne unit in in uh, in Burma, uh, and they want to do a. There's going to be an Allied invasion, but that that is not a, a, apparent at the time of the briefing of this mission. They want to do a long range penetration to take out a radar station, and then come out again. And they go in. So it's 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 kind of a couple of dozen people. And maybe and there's two two flights to Dakotas, isn't it? Yeah. So it's like thirty men, a pluck of two. Yeah, men, thirty, I'd say. Under Captain Nelson, who is who is Errol Flynn, and um, they take off in their two Dakotas. They get dropped. That's all fine. They find the radar station. They take it out, completely destroy it. That's all fine. Then they get compromised, and the the pickup place where they're supposed to be picked up by these Dakotas has been overrun by Japanese, and so that's not possible. So they then need to go to another rendezvous. Um, but they split up in the process of going making that rendezvous. And at the rendezvous, um, near the rendezvous, they discover uh, they're discovered by Japanese. They have a big ding dong, and they can't be picked up. Um, then they arrange for another pickup point uh, or, or place where they might be dropped. But then they break their radio, um, and so it's a, and so what are they going to do? Um, uh, and it's their struggles to sort of get away from it, get 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 back out again. That's the that's the issue. And eventually they do kind of they do there's the uh there's a there's an allied invasion which seems to be entirely made up of american paratroopers and i guess it's that bit that's really really the problem because of course you know there were plenty of american troops in in china, china burma india mm-hmm. um you know stillwell had his base in in southwest china um you know was training chinese divisions under his command but also had people like merrill's marauders who were kind of uh, went in in early 1944, and they were doing pretty much the same as the Chindits. You know, there was kind of sort of 3,000 of them. They're all volunteers. They were sent over, you know, they were under direction of, of MacArthur. There was a combination of people that had been uh, from the United States, but also people that had served in, in Guadalcanal and the South Pacific. And 
they went in, they did a series of very, very successful operations, you know, in, in 1944 and early part of 1945, right through to, to uh, and they famously took out this, this um, uh, uh, airfield at Maitkina um, in May 1945. And, you know, this is sort of what this film is based on, isn't it? I think. Yeah, I think These so. These sort of guys. I mean, it's, it's, it's the idea. I mean, I guess the other thing is, is the reason is, you know, the reason they're Americans is because it's made in Hollywood and it's Warner Brothers and yeah. it's made in California. There's a War Department memo that I found that was sent to the, the studio while they were making the film. The Burmese activities have involved the 23rd and 38th Chinese divisions and the 36th Indian division, a special outfit yep. of 3,000 American infantrymen, uh, the Cochrane American Air Command, those carried in a battalion of American airborne combat engineers, plus British Indian ground troops. And they finally say that I recognize the fact that this is alleged to be a fictitious story, but it is a production it is so authentic, so vivid and realistic that a major part of the public is going to accept it as a record of the events, especially in view of the announced cooperation of the air forces, the paratroopers and the war department. Therefore, I feel we can bring its level of historical information up to the present level of an authentic background. We will be serving the war effort well. So they were telling the studio Wow. They were telling the studio, very. this is back in, this is in December 44. This is a month before it premieres. Mm. And they're telling the studio, you know, you might get some pushback if you put it out the way you do. And it obviously in the in England, there's a massive press fiore, the Mirror, the Telegraph and the Times. They really lay into the movie. And they say, I'll show it to us now. I'll share the screen. So I would like to get some reactions um, of one of the cartoons that appears in the mirror and for listeners we'll share this on the website as well fightingonfilm.com and on the twitter at fighting on film so this is the cartoon that the mirror puts up on the 7th of october um 5th of october sorry 45 wow look at that yeah so for for, for audio listeners it's a as a, a very stereotypical uh, director sitting in a director's chair it says gigantic productions inc hollywood and he's holding a script for a movie called Atom Bomb. And it says all American at the time, there'd been an Atom Bomb movie that pretty much whitewashed the British involvement in creating the bomb. Um, yeah. And then in the corner there, there is more scripts. And there's one that says script for the all American Burma front. So at the time, the controversy about objective Burma had come out and there's a, a chap in a, in a suit. And the, 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 the fellow who's sitting in the chair is sitting on a, a graveyard and it says Britain's sacrifice for world freedom. And the strap line is, excuse me, but you're sitting on some graves. That's absolutely amazing. What yeah. A, what a fantastic picture, cartoon. I mean, I, I think people are feeling very, very sore because of the situation in Europe, because of the, it was very clear after Roosevelt died, Truman takes over, you know, the atomic bomb. Suddenly there was this sort of sea change. Uh, there was this sudden, you know, having had this amazing levels of cooperation and collaboration with the coalition of, of the America and Britain for much of the war, suddenly after the end of the European war, it's kind of freeze out time. Mm. Uh, and I think Britain is feeling very sore about that. You know, yeah. we've got a, we've still got bombed out streets and all that kind of stuff. And America seems to be sort of getting fat on the back of other people's misery. And, and you know, I think it's, I, personally, I think it's entirely justified that the Americans and Hollywood and Warner Brothers take the route they take, you know, because Americans were in Burma. Uh, and no point do they say they're the only troops in Burma. Yeah. Um, but I also can see why in Britain, particularly in the autumn of 1945, where it's suddenly, OK, we're coming home and we're coming home to this, to rationing, to kind of, you know, 
yeah we've got victory but what's the future uh you know we've lost uh, effectively losing our empire we've lost um, you know we're, we're in this we're, we're stony broke all those kind of things you can see why people are a bit sensitive about it at the time it comes out in 1952 it's reissued in 1952 yeah, reissued, yeah. uh, and, and it's fine then you know everyone sort of calmed down yeah the reviews that i found around that time that they still rankles but they, they rankles, give it, it more of a fair review that they you know they go oh I, we remember the controversy from 45 but there is a uh, an epilogue or a, or a prologue where they do say you know with thanks to the commonwealth forces and great britain so it was reissued with a a statement beforehand um right it's still issued i mean I, I did you find some you found some letters to the to the studio i did I, so the the, the furore around it began in may 45 and the dundee courier covers carries a piece that's called burma a film attacked travesty says u.s colonel and they they speak to um, or they have a letter from um, a, a Lieutenant Colonel Taylor who was the commander of the glider men under Cochrane, um, and it says it was a disturbing thought that the me- the meritorious hodgepodge, which implies that Burma was invaded and liberated by a force of American parachutists, glider-borne troops, two Gurkha guides, and a Chinese officer, will be seen by thousands of men of the Fourteenth Army who know better. So there's a, a an American colonel calling wow. it a little bit of a travesty, mm. um, and from there it seems that it it snowballs, and the film is apparently shown to to men in India and Burma before it becomes to cinemas in the US and England. So we get this sort of initial pushback. Once those reviews that that Rob mentioned um, from Manuk come out and others, and it sort of syndicates throughout all the press. Um, we get a little bit of pushback from from Warner, who uh, in September uh, 26 September 45, Max Marler, who was a managing director of, of Warner Brothers, uh, pushes back on the criticism and says that there's no foundation to any of the criticism wow. and that uh, it doesn't deliberately ignore the major part played by the, the British 14th Army. So yeah. Warner Brothers uh, are obviously on the back foot and on the defensive on that. Within days, it's it's pulled from UK. Yeah, under, the war, the war Ju- office, war office. Yeah, mm. it's it's crazy. But yeah. isn't it amazing how you know just how sensitive people are? I mean, mm. I have another letter from from um, a viewer Ooh. who says, uh, "During the last two or three years, we've had the Americans stationed with us. Although their behaviour has not always been exemplary, we've taken it with customary good humour." which I thought was very interesting. <laughs> um, we have also seen some films sent over here by American film companies of the brilliant exploits of their troops on almost every battlefield in which they have been associated. These films have overflowed with their flowing banners and brass bands, patriotic songs, and dewy-eyed mothers saying farewell to their sons. We've taken these as being American characteristics and have become used to this type of picture about themselves. There is, however, a picture now showing in Britain called Objective Burma, which should be objectionable about Burma. So he's retitled it there quite <laughs> nicely. Fantastic. Um, this film demonstrates how the Doughboys carried out an operation against the Japanese. The forgotten 14th Army is now pushed into oblivion. The sufferings of our prisoners of war counted for little. The only mention made of British troops is with such raillery, one would think they were never there. It's a great pity that our gallant lads from the Far East have to come home from their privations on the battlefield to see American paratroops winning the Battle of Burma for them. So a little bit long, but that is a letter sent from a Frankie Willits of Kings Norton, 
to the Birmingham Mail on the 25th. Wow. Hugely irritated by by this fact. Point with, I mean, you have this over and over and over again with films. I mean, it's, it's the same point about Band of Brothers and it's the same point about Saving Private Ryan. I mean, you know, you'd be forgiven for thinking there were any Brits involved in Saving Private Ryan, but but yeah. Saving Private Ryan is is about one small unit and uh, and a rescue mission. And so is this, mm. uh, and so is this, uh, and it's not. Uh, no point in the film does it say there were no British and, and Indian troops here. Yeah, or Gurkhas. It just says this is this is a story of these two. So yeah. I, you know exactly. I think I think that's. I, I think everyone's. I think the criticism is. Uh, I, I totally get it. Why there's the sensitivities at the end of the war, but mm. I also think it's it's kind of not really. Yeah, this is the this is today. What, it seems ridiculous that that, that it yeah. would be that people would well, be so sensitive. On, on my, it, my, my answer would be is is well, make your own film then. You know, make a make a make a really good movie. Yeah, that does involve British Indian and Gurkha troops. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think me and Matt were talking when we were planning the episode, and we think it it's a little bit of well, have you seen the film? You know, how many people actually went and saw it after this controversy? Because if mm. you do watch it, there are Gurkhas involved, there are Commonwealth troops represented and at the end mm. it does say with thanks to you know the, the, it does. the Commonwealth yeah, yeah. forces there's it the inclusion of Major Fitch Pat, Fitzpatrick yeah the two uh, Gurkha guides from the uh, the border force and in, interesting you should mention that James that they you know they should have made their own film uh, another letter to the Scotsman on the 26th of September actually ends with the film made me extremely angry what is wrong so very wrong is that the film suggests the whole of the fighting was done by Americans just think how popular in America would a film depicting David Divin and a platoon of the Highland Light Infantry leading the British Army to capture the Philippines. So it kind of twists it on its mm-hmm. head. I'd watch and there's, that. There's another there. similar letter that says, <laughs> what if we did, made a film where, um, where some Royal Marines captured Okinawa or someone, something like yeah, that? Yeah, it's true. But I think it is, I think it is it. the, it, it's, it's that final scene of the, of the, the airborne invasion going over that's, a, that's the yeah. thing that really rankles, isn't it? I mean, that, that's the thing. The actual mission itself, is, there's nothing wrong with it at all, really. No, you are I mean, right. I, I don't know. I, I mean, I just, I just think, you know, it, it, the film is about a small number of men doing a deep penetration mission. Mm. Americans did do that in Burma. Um, they weren't paratroopers, but they did do it. Um, so they were sort of special forces. I mean, marauders by today's standards would be considered special forces. Yeah. And and you know that that did happen. And at no point in the film does it say there aren't any British there or no. or any it's Indian incredible. troops. In there. fact, you it know, goes it, out it's, of its way to include them. And it does mention at the end of the film, it reads, "The film is grateful, uh, gratefully dedicated to the men of the American, British, Chinese, and Indian armies." That whose heroic efforts Burma would still be in the hands of the Japanese. Exactly. So obviously that's added postscript. Yeah. Probably because of some of the furore. I don't know whether that was on the original. Well, maybe we should forget the Ferrari though and, and talk about the film because the film yeah, I think is, is I think I think the film is terrific. I, I really, really enjoyed it. We we you have to mention the controversy around it because it's almost as interesting as the film itself. Quickly wrap up production. The budget of the film is is huge for the time. It's it's, it's one point five nine million, which and wow. you can see that on screen. You know, it, it holds yeah. up, and I think it it holds up because Warner Brothers are really pushing it. You know, mm. because they've signed Errol Flynn to a seven picture deal. He's obviously had his controversies at this time. This is one of the movies that he's trying to sort of lift himself out of. So you can see, you know, the money on screen, and of course, Errol couldn't serve because of his medical um, history. He was yep. declared unfit for service. So this is another thing that, you know, the, the studio helps him with, you know, do war pictures, you know, support the war in that way. 
yeah, he hated the fact that he couldn't join up. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the, the, you know, the war was sort of almost made for him. This was his rescue, his opportunity yeah. to go back to doing what he really wanted to do, which was being a kind of a he-man, being macho. And, and so his frustration at not being allowed to, to take part was was just immense. And it was because he had a bad back. It was because he had TB. It was because he had malaria. It's because he had a whole host of kind of sort of lurgies, all of which he'd contracted mainly, well, apart from the bad back, most of them he'd got during his years of adventuring in the late mm. 1920s and early 30s. Mm. So... It's not that he was kind of sort of ducking service by any stretch no, of the not, imagination. Not and he did all. go to the Spanish Civil War, of course. So, yeah, he did. Uh, yeah. As a journalist. So, you know, he went out there. So Yeah. Um, and then obviously, you know, he apparently he was a bit notorious for not turning up on time, things like that. But apparently whenever he did a war picture, he was on an absolute, you know, his top form would always best be on behavior. set. Best behaviour. Um, so he, well, he has know, some we, quite a lot of monologues in this. Yeah, he does. Yeah. And I think that he actually... As I said earlier, it's it's a completely different performance than what you're used to seeing. You know, there's a lot of yeah. emotion there. There's a lot of subtle subtle subtlety to his acting that I don't think mm. you necessarily get from something like Captain Blood or Robin Hood. Um, no, not a swashbuckler in this. So, but it is a, a Raoul Walsh um, film, yeah. which is notable because obviously in the '40s he had this whole um, run of films with Walsh. Um, they Die With Their Boots On, Desperate Journey, Northern Pursuit. Yeah, so there are yeah. all these 40s films, which, you know, Walsh, Walsh is at the top of his game. And he's obviously pulling something out of Flynn with this one because um, mm. the, the script obviously stretches his legs. But I think I agree with James. I think it's probably one of his best performances. I really, I love I love Flynn movies. I got to say, I mean, I, I as a kid, I, I grew up watching, you know, Seahawks. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It's Captain Blood. Um, absolutely love the swashbucklers, but this one's really interesting because I don't know. It, it just he just seems to be really you know on 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 his game. Yeah, and you can tell like the characterization. He cares about his men and. He's always reminding them, you know, take your salt tablets. Let's stop mm. and have some food. Everyone take ten. It's a sort of level of care that you don't sometimes see in war films of the era. They they don't make the effort to show leaders of men being more considerate to their men on a human level. You know, I know that I think Niven in The Way Ahead gets that a little bit, mm. um, but you know, it's it's just refreshing to see an an American character. In, in a movie at that time, not just being like a macho man, he's actually compassionate about his men. And when they find the remnants of the second section after they split and they've been tortured and killed by the, by the Japanese, 
that sequence for me it elevates the movie because it's gone from regular sort of war movie to saying a lot more about the war at home to people and and really ramming it home you know i don't know Mm. how you know obviously people they call themselves civilized people that's it yeah that's that's what um um uh, the the journalist says yeah williams williams's old diatribe there is great really good that whole sequence is really it's quite tense there um i thought the other thing i thought was absolutely brilliantly done was uh, was uh, the last big big shootout when they're on the yeah. they're, on, they're on the knoll and the japanese are advancing in the night yeah really and tense. and there's a guy in the foxhole and he's really starting to sweat and you're just waiting for something to happen and then the flare goes off, and then he gets knifed doesn't he and then That's and then it. the flare goes off and it's it's really well done yeah, and that that scene almost for me, it could be out of like a Korean War movie, it could be out of a Vietnam yeah. War movie. It, it's it's timeless like cinema, really. That whole end sequence and the way it uses lighting and it's yeah, it's beautiful. Yeah, shot. yeah. yeah. Mm. it's almost too good for forty five. Like the you can because it's an, again you can see the budget on screen. The scale yeah, of the film good. is. You just kind of wish there was a little bit more of that yeah. end battle. But I mean, it's interesting because they 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 use um, I mean, most of it is is. Is is filmed um, at a, ranch, a Santa Anita ranch in Pasadena. Yeah, where, and, and there's also an arboretum. Yeah, in California, in California the, that they, the, yeah, they use for a lot of the scene. Yeah, exactly. So they use that a lot. But then they're obviously using real footage as well of people chucking out the um, uh, uh, out of the supply drops out of the Dakotas yeah. and stuff. Yeah, and that's just done so seamlessly because usually yeah. that's really clunky. And I think I think most people wouldn't know that. I mean, no, I've I've got in my notes. It's under my like fate, one of my fave sequences in the film. I think that splicing together of the 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 guys in the Dakota cockpit looking behind them, and they've got the guys with the supplies chucking them out, and that cuts to stock footage. If you weren't versed in Second World War stock footage and had seen the amount of documentaries that I'm sure we've yeah. all seen and, and listeners will know, but if you were a complete novice, you're thinking probably that's been filmed for the movie because it is seamless, and we all know yeah. in in films you know like oh god is it the desert rats or the desert patrol yeah, with yeah. richard burton which is like 90 percent stock footage and it just doesn't cut properly the stock no. f- the film grain is too much you know i almost mm, feel speed yeah. yeah and the speed is different but i think in this one they've they've redoctored the footage they've slowed it down so it matches and it's just sublime you know it's it does yeah. it gives it an almost documentary yeah. feel to it so like that opening sequence with the p38 and the whole sequence where it's doing like a reconnaissance mission, you, it, the camera doesn't go to anyone from the cast for the first five minutes of the movie because it's purely following a chap taking some film from the P thirty eight, taking it literally yeah. into the lab, yeah. developing it, and then and then we we get into sort of like you know the, the mission briefing s parts of the film. But it's really interesting that they spliced in all this footage because. It's it's all filmed by uh, U.S. Army Single Corps, um, and I don't know if you want to mention this later, Rob, when we talk about your, that fave scene. But I did find in the Burma India Roundup from April '45, there's uh, there's a story in there where some of Merrill's marauders and one of the Army Single Corps um, guys had actually filmed the footage of them pushing the food out of the, the, oh, the Dakota. Wow. Wow. Uh, sat and watched the film <laughs> um, and they talk about uh, what they think about it and how accurate it is. Oh, that's incredible. That's great. Yeah, yeah. so the, the, there's a little bit that says, um, it's referring to the, the, the bit where they attack the radar station and he says, 
The way they, wi the way they wiped out those Japs just doesn't happen. There should have been a couple of stragglers. There are always some wounded in an action like that. So notably in that sequence, everyone's dead. When the, Once they've finished yeah. their attack on that, everyone's dead. There's no, no Japanese wounded. No one gets away. It goes on to say, it talk about the bird noises in the background and, and the wait now bird. There's a, there's a little bit where he says, I suppose they uh, similarly gave us away to the Japs. Um, what he's talking about when, when mm. people move, the birds sort, sort of uh, started calling. Yeah. And he says, I said to myself, hell, I can remember that. It's Bama, all right. Wow. Which I thought was a great little thing to include. Yeah. To have that contemporary sort of view of a soldier who's fought is like when do you ever get that we've never had exactly that. and just just one tiny last little bit that i thought was really striking the article concludes with every time a jap was killed in the picture the ex-marauders would laugh and one said i don't suppose it was really funny to anyone but just seeing the get those guys go down makes you feel good wow wish it was that easy to knock them off in real life as it is in movies so, jeez yeah yeah yeah, apparently they like that. the movie. They actually really like the movie, mm. but they are Americans, so <laughs> you can't really take that for. Yeah, I mean, I, I had a, an uncle who fought in Burma um, uh, with one of the commando units out there. He didn't like Japan. He's very anti-Japanese. Whenever we took him out to buy something like an electrical appliance, he wouldn't. It had to be. It could be Korean. It could be Vietnamese. It could be Tai Taiwan. You know, but if it's if it's Jap is it built? He would go. Is it built in Jap in Japan? And my dad would have to go, no, no, it's um, it's not built in Japan, don't worry. He goes, good, because I won't have it in my house. Mm. It really affected him. So I, I can see how that guy might have been feeling at the time, you know, and coming off it so fresh. It's just, it's amazing. Um, so James, a, a, a section of the movie you really liked? Well, I, I suppose my favourite was the bit with the when they're in the village and, um, you know, they get attacked by the Japanese. First of all, they discover that the, the other part of the column that's been split in two has been tortured and, and left for dead. They've got to take out the two people, the two Japanese troops that have been left to kind of sort of guard the village. And then they get counterattacked and, and, and they've got to escape down the through the water, through the river. And, and it's it's just a really, really fantastic scene because it's got it's got pathos, it's got incredible drama, it's got some good bits of action. You know, all the weapons they're firing are real weapons, mm -hmm. and and you know, the Thompson is firing in the right way, um, the carbine is firing in the right way. Um, the machine gun is firing in the right way, so you know they're reals with they're real weapons with real blanks in, and uh, the whole thing is just it's just a really really good part of the film, uh, and it's interesting because just before that it's sort of it's it's just dragging a bit, so it's it's a welcome kind of injection yeah. of of high drama and action at the same time. Yeah, the pace. I also thought the, the new one was brilliant as well. Mm. The the pacing is something that that is sort of it could be a little bit quicker. But I guess it's trying to show how just how far these guys have had to travel to get there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, I on a second viewing, I appreciated it more. On the first viewing, I was like, "Come on, let's get to the next scene, please." You know, let's get to the next set piece. But it's just a bit too ponderous at times, isn't it? Mm. And, and it's just a, it, it lingers a bit too long while they're you know, I mean, you know, in the in the in the plane before they jump out, for example, you know, that that's about five minutes. It, it just is, doesn't yeah. need to be that long. Yeah. And I reckon that the whole film would be much better if it was just tightened up and shaved yeah, off. Yeah, I always minutes. think that though, that when we talk about these movies from, you know, gosh, 67, 80 years ago now, is it something like that? Yeah. Um, that we the way we consume cinema is different now, obviously. So back then your 
that's your whole week is going to the pictures. You get your news, you get right. your cartoon. Yes. Then you're sitting down, you're in for the long haul and you're not going to know, you know, you look at movies back then, they're all about two hours long. Usually, you know, they're, they're never yeah. usually lo- like shorter than that. So it's, but this is two hours twenty, isn't it? This is, uh, and I, I read a, I read a, I read a contemporary review of when it came out, and they, it got a really, really high, it got very good rating, but it did say it was mm. half an hour too long. <laughs> wow, that's that's they rare for the time. Know. Yeah, I think it's rare. interesting because there's a lot of procedural elements, like as you mentioned there, James, <clears throat> in the Dakota. Literally, he goes through like how you put your you know, you shoot line on the... Well, I thought the, all that was absolutely fascinating. Yeah, it's really I mean, good. if you want to know what it was like about flying over over Normandy, that's how they do it. Yeah. Yeah. But Pretty it's good. it's interesting that they decided to be so procedural, like with the with the uh, reconnaissance photos being developed. So it's, yeah. it's almost showing the the audience mm. how things are done. And, and at that point, Williams is sort of the audience member and he's having it all explained to him. Uh, and he's like, oh, okay, right. So you know. yeah, he's the foil, isn't he? Yeah, he's he is. Yeah, conduit. he's us, isn't he? He's meant to be us, out, out of his depth. You know, we're meant to be him. Um, so Matt, your favourite bit before we move on to the alley tally? Well, we mentioned it earlier. I I really like um, a couple. Of, I mean, I love the whole film to be fair. But yeah. um, <laughs> the 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 end scene uh, is is a great one um, with the guys on the hill. But I I really like the radar station attack. Um, I like the scope and the scale of that. I think it's really interesting that they decided to make the focal point of of that initial part of the movie the the radar station because James I don't know how many radar stations Japan had in Burma but I don't think it was that many if I recall rightly. <laughs> I have no idea actually. I don't know. I've I've been, I've been probably none at all. So it's Maybe. a really interesting thing that they chose yeah to have you know an attack on a radar station. I know the war department yeah. Matt said that the, the, in those memos, there's one they go, well, the, the Japanese don't really have many radar stations as it is, so be careful what you sort of put on screen. Um, but really, that, you know, okay. well, it, yeah. I suppose it makes it, you know, it's all the more vital that they attack this radar station because there aren't of many of them. <laughs> no, exactly, yeah. But um, yeah, I, I they've gone to a lot of trouble to to get that set set up. So there's the um, the, the the various shacks where they're going to um, the, the canteen. And yeah, they have it's like the, a little sort of compound, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Yeah, and they have the, the racks with rifles stacked up, and and the radar um, antenna is literally rotating. There's a guy sat on it, and it's it, you know it's a nice little bit of scale um, to a film that's otherwise quite close, except mm. in the stock footage, um, it's following just a platoon of men. Uh, so it's quite an intimate film at times, and you get to know the intricacies of a lot of the characters because I suppose that's one of the benefits of the two and a to almost two and a half hour runtime is you get to see bits of these characters you know some of them are wisecracking some of them are a little bit combat stressed yep. let's say um, so it gives a bit of nuance but that scene's really great because it it it's kind of shows them setting up for the attack um, it's all well executed everything goes great try and get back to the plane that's when it of course it does you're attacking you're attacking your main position with one of the main cast members i think you're going to be fine aren't you in any movie <laughs> <laughs> and especially if you're attacking but isn't errol flynn just terrific of course i mean he's yeah. such a great film star yeah and you know he's had this such an incredibly interesting life i mean it's 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 a tragic life and of course and it doesn't end there because he had this incredibly good looking son called sean yes. he was then <clears throat> was then killed in cambodia yeah, he became a photographer, war photographer. He's he friends with Tim Page, wasn't he? And they, that's right. They went yeah. around, and he was apparently uh, the Khmer Rouge got him. Apparently, um, 
Yeah, yeah, they did. Yeah, still not found a body. But there's a, there's a great uh, series called Frankie's House, which has um, Ian Glenn playing t- playing Tim Page, and uh, Sean Flynn is as as a character in that too. And it's about their friendship and when Sean goes wow. missing and how it affects Tim Page. I think yeah. we'll probably do that on the on the show eventually. Um, yeah. Wow. So um, I think that probably brings us on to the alley tally. Um, well, what's your favourite part, Rob? You haven't told us. Oh, I don't mentioned it. It's it's the bit with the stock footage. I just love it. I think it's fantastic. Oh, the Dakota and the chaps yeah, pushed really, out. Yeah. <laughs> really think it's Very great. Good. It's just, I just like, yeah. it's more from a, cin- a cinema point of view that I like that. It's, I know it's mm. not a pivotal scene or anything in particular, but it just how what, how it looks and how it's done, I think, for the time. It adds a lot, it's, doesn't it? it it's just impressive. There's a, there's a, the overall, there's a, there's a huge amount of attention to detail, which I think is really impressive, very unlikely in, in, yeah. a, in, a, in an American wartime film or film from that period. You know, and I know I mentioned I mentioned the, the the griming up of the of the jump jackets and all the rest of it, but it's really good. So before we get into that, James, I think we'll run the alley tally jingle and we'll get into the kit. It's time for alley tally on fighting on film. So as James was alluding to there before we played the lovely jingle by Chaz Mina, and thanks very much for that, Chaz. I mean, the kit in this movie is just spot on, isn't it? It's absolutely spot on, and it's incredibly rare that it is. Uh, and, and it's not just that it's spot on, it's also that it's all bashed about, and they get, you know, they start off with clean, clean kit when they're mm. getting on the plane yeah. to go to the start of the mission. It's all absolutely pristine. By the end of it, it's absolutely threadbare, you know, and you can see the grime on it. They've obviously been wearing these things while they've been filming it. Yeah, it's all rips on um, the arms. Films and... sequential, it rips on the arms, but also it's really grimy and dirty. Yeah. And, and you know, the stubble's grown on the face. They're really sweaty. You know, Errol Flynn's, um, his his netting over his helmet has sort of got torn. torn yeah. yeah it's, re- it's really good. Yeah. You know, there's little things like it says, says um, okay, boys, can you go and... Um, um, make a make a stretcher and, and, and get him on the stretcher, uh, and you see them chopping down two bamboo things. They take off their jackets, they thread the jackets through the two two shoots of the bamboo sticks. Yeah. Put the guy on the stretcher. There's your makeshift stretcher. You go, yeah, of course that's how they did it. It's really you know, good, isn't it, it? but it just really rings true. It's really good, and it's got to be the uh, possibly one of the earliest um, on screen uh, debuts of that um, of the American paratrooper jump jackets and jump uniforms because mm. I don't I don't think I've seen it beforehand, and I know that. Usually it's only in stock footage. In movies, I don't know if I've seen it before. But as, as you yeah, say, with well, the it's kit, fantastic. it's great because um, most of the chaps that are carrying Thompsons have rigger pouches, those big sort of yeah. ones there. And some have like Thompson pouches, things like that. And the guys that have Garands actually have Garand rifle belts. And that's really rare. You don't usually, after like, like you know, 50s movie cinema 60s 70s guys have smgs but they're carrying like rifle pouches it's just the right, right, right. it's that added attention to detail mm. that that holds up still i know now we're used to these ultra sort of realistic war movies you know 1917 there's not one pouch out of place but before before recent yeah. times you know you're in banner brothers you see that realism but this one this movie really takes the time um and it's nice. The only thing that's missing is is is, is uh, um, Errol Flynn doesn't have a pistol. You'd you'd expect him to yeah, have a yeah. especially with paratroops. Mm. Yeah, they really loved them, didn't yeah. they? But he's carrying a. Yeah, he doesn't seem to have one at all. No, I don't no. think he he's does. I don't think anyone has a, a secondary weapon. Um, but he's carrying an M1. They've, got, they've, they've obviously got the machetes, which. Oh, yeah, that's really nice touch. Yeah, even down to Williams having a having a machete on him too, mm. um, which is really. Did nice. you notice some, some of the M1918 uh, fighting knives they had? 
you know, with the knuckle Ooh, duster. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. it's sort of like on on the machete. Um, that's it. Scabbard. Yeah. Yeah, that's and there's really a couple nice. of them pull it out for the you know some of the yeah. uh, quieter. The only attacks. thing that annoyed me, and I and I think I can explain why, but it, I thought about it last night and it, and it irked me a little bit. They don't have any musette bags. They don't have any haversacks on them, and I only put that down to well, they're only meant to be there for that that initial blowing up of the radar station. But surely, if you're going into the jungle and there's a slim chance that you might get, you know, you might not be able to be picked up. Surely, you'd go in with a little bit more. Well, like, they don't. Yeah, they don't point. expect to be there. And in that briefing scene, I I made a note last night. Flint again that procedural element. Flint actually like tells the guys what they're going to take with them, oh, and he yeah. says, "Don't bring any toiletries. Don't bring any haversacks, etc." Yeah, that's true. He actually, says, he does, "You'll he? carry your standard SOP load uh, of ammo, six, six, six grenades. grenades, exactly. Going to take two thirty caliber machine guns, thousand rounds each, and that's it." Yeah. So the. the even go to the attention of detail of going, and then, why and they're then so they're dependent on supply drops, aren't they? Mm-hmm. And, the, and the, the, the drops that come in. So what, so Matt, you, I know you were doing some digging. What is that 30 caliber mock-up that they've got? What the hell is going Vickers on gun. there? It's a Vickers, it's a Vickers gun. gun. Yeah. Oh, okay. So it, it, it's really interesting because I watched it and I thought, oh, this is cool. We've got, you know, we're going to get some 30 caliber action. So it's not a Browning. Um, and it's actually a mocked up Vickers gun. There are Browning M1919A4s in the movie, um, but they, they never fire. Um, cause yeah, cause you see that characteristic squat tripod mm. and yeah. the, the Browning is a much thinner weapon because I think the Vickers one that has Flint's a fusee holding, spring on the side that you can see. I think it might've been hollowed out for Flynn to carry because there's a bit where he's carrying it upside down and you can see inside the receiver and it just looks mm. like there's nothing in there. So I wonder if the, the Warner brothers prop department have, have like been cutting bits out of it. I mean, it could be a legitimate, um, Browning and they've just taken the bolt out. That would significantly lighten it. You wouldn't want your um, leads to yeah, hurting themselves, would you? Exactly. The, <laughs> yeah. the, it's a Vickers, and I, I can only imagine it's because what what the the studio had for blank firing. Yeah. yeah. Um, you can tell it's a Vickers because of the fusee spring on the side and and the, the direction of feed, but also there's a couple of scenes where it's it's characteristically on a very tall Vickers gun tripod rather yeah. than the. Yeah, it is. And right. they do their best to hide it, though. It's always they do. Some, they some do. like foliage or something. It's but nice there's some lovely, lovely little bits um, focusing on the machine gun firing. Uh, mm. the, again, the cinematography by um, James Wong Howe is really nice. Uh, Very good. Um, but you can you can also tell that it's a Vickers because you can see the rear of where the, the barrel jacket would be. That's, like yeah, that's how I the, sort of... From the receiver. So it looks it a little bit off. Away. Yeah. yeah, it's really cool though. It's nice to see it, and it's also mm. nice to see thirty round Thompson mags because you don't really see those very often. It's a nice yeah. little feature. Yeah. Although the cuts, the cuts compensators on the Thompsons look a bit funny. They look a bit mocked up to me. Some of them look a bit mocked up. Yeah, mm. I know what you mean. They could be um, blank adapters, maybe for for blank. Oh, I don't know. Maybe. Mm. Um, I don't know. But yeah, there's some twenty round magazines in there as well. When I watched it again last night, I noticed a few twenty rounds. Mm. Um, but as you say, they all have those pouches for the 30 round. Yeah, the rigger pouches. Yeah, it's really mm. nice to see. And I think they try and make the one of the Gurkha guides, I think they try and make it look like he's got 37 webbing on by making him wear his pouches incredibly high up his... Oh, really? Um, <laughs> yeah, I noticed. Well, there's some scenes where, like, Errol's sort of webbing is, like, right up near his, like, where his nipples would be. It's, like, really weird. <laughs> like, he sort of wears it a bit off <laughs> in certain sequences. But it looks great, and 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 I, and I have to mention it's really nice to see all those Waco gliders at the end. I mean, if 
if you're a glider fan, it's it's incredible. And they might not be strictly accurate. No, but, but especially that end sequence where the Dakota. Oh, the gliders are fantastic. Oh, so mm. good. Yeah, and it, especially when you see the the Dakota pick it up at the end. I mean, that looks great. I yeah. don't think that's ever been seen in any other film. To I don't be think honest. I've seen it. I don't think I, I've only seen it in stock footage. I haven't seen it replicated on film. And that definitely is shot. No, it's fantastic. That's definitely shot for the movie. I mean, and that's no, yeah. another thing again where that budget's coming in. You know, you wouldn't be able to do that if you didn't have the budget to to pick it up. And I know that Jack Jack L. Warner himself was one of the executive producers, so no expense is spared in the movie, and you can really see it. And obviously, that help that really helps with the, the kit and stuff like that. You know, because you can just see the money on screen. It's it's just brilliant. I was gonna I was gonna interject and say that I think my one of my favorite picks for the uh, the alley tally would be Williams's cravat and combat jacket combo. Ooh. Yeah, the really nice. In the briefing, he's very very suave. Liked it. And he has his proper. Oh yeah, he's got an M41. Hasn't that's he? it. Yeah, he's got Parsons jacket to start off with. And that's where the Hemingway thing came in for me because there's pictures of Hemingway running around Normandy with a cravat on. Um, in his Willis Jeep. So that's where I got the, the, the thing from. And then I, with the age and him being thin, I got, and him smoking. I can see it. I can see it. Yeah, I got definitely. Pyle from that. And I thought, because Pyle and Hemingway were probably the two of the most well-known war correspondents publicly at the time. You know, Hemingway being a novelist and Pyle just for his incredible works. But it's even down to, and they didn't need to do it, but it was really nice to see. Um, as listeners will know, I, or people who follow me on Twitter, I love a bit of war correspondent. It's action. It's just fantastic to see it. He's got his <laughs> um, armband with the C on it, and it's not a, it's not a proper one, but there were people made their own and, and 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 things like that. They were sort of ad hoc made. Like I know the 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 British got their own really nice nicely made war correspondents badge, but the American correspondents had a, a, a an absolute mad mashup of, of of badges but it's just really nice to see his armband with a c on it because they didn't need to do it but it's just that extra level of detail you know someone at warner brothers had to read the um the shafe manual to see what um war correspondents had to be wearing <laughs> it's just really nice to see it especially to see as well i know yesterday's enemy has war correspondents represented but it is also nice to see war correspondents represented in a movie about the far east it's nice to get a film about China, Burma, India, to be honest. Yeah, really. really. Yeah, absolutely. There's only a handful, And actually, really. although it's filmed in California, it's, it's for the most part, it's pretty convincing. And the fact that they do blend it with, with, the, with the, um, the the theatre footage as well of the kind of landscape, it, it kind of, it, it works. I mean, it's not unconvincing, is it? No, and it holds up now. And I think it's recently had a, in the last year or few years, it had a 4K restoration. Or, or a definite like 1080p restoration was yeah, on Blu-ray. Yeah, it does look great. I, I've, I've watched a, a fairly high-res version of it, and it looks fantastic still. You'll have to go and watch Dawn Patrol now. Yeah, I've seen bits of it. I've never seen it the whole way through. Oh, it's, it's one of those so movies. It's so good. It's, yeah. it's Flynn and Niven. How can you not like that? It's I know. Just, and Basil Rathbone. I'm yeah. working through Niven's works. I'm sort of going backwards, I think. I, I, st- I usually start <laughs> off with the stuff at the end of the career. I don't know why. I always like to see how they end up, usually where they start. So that was the alley tally for this week. And I think we did, we did favorite scenes. We talked about the plot. So I think we should possibly go into final thoughts. It's all about Flynn, isn't it really? Oh, it has to be. Yeah, I loved it. I thought it was great. I I thought it was, uh, you know, apart from the criticism of being just a little bit too long, I thought it was fantastic, but really, really holds up as a war movie. For for one that's made in, you know, presumably filmed in 1944 Mm. or comes out in 1945. It's terrific. It's really, really, really good. Yeah. And I don't think possibly I don't, 
think that it's as well remembered as it possibly should be. Yeah, no, I agree with that. I I don't think Flynn is as well remembered as he probably should possibly be. Not. Really, no. Possibly. When you think no, about Flynn, it, Flynn is terrific in it. He's really good. It's a, I mean, you know, he is the main man, and he's got to be good in it, or else the film's mm. going to fall to pieces. Yeah, and he is. He's he's absolutely top. He d- has a lot to do in it. He has. A, he's carrying a lot of the weight, the emotional weight, anyway, um, of through a lot of the the sequences, and he really pushes through. And I saw, and I hope, I wished he'd had more of those straight roles. Because um, he doesn't get, he didn't get them very often. But when he did get them, he really no. could act very well and was a very good well, actor. As I've, I've said it before, you know, Dawn Patrol is brilliant in that. He really is absolutely brilliant. Um, so, um, yeah, I thought it was great. Exactly, and I think possibly the the controversy sullies the film's reputation a, a tiny bit. Possibly, yeah, perhaps so. Um, but I think it's unjustified, as we said. It's I, unjustified. I just, I just don't think it's actual thing. I think, as James said, it's. It's probably just a little bit of um, British, um, you know. Perhaps uh, I think it's over, I think over it at the end of the war. Yeah, it. It's, yeah, it's, it is. You have to you have to think about when all that criticism was coming out. I think that's that's the key point. But uh, yeah, it, I thought it was great. You know, thank you for suggesting it. No, it's fine. It's fine. I I you know I I knew from listening to the We Have Ways for a while that you were a big Errol Flynn fan. So <laughs> I thought if there was one movie to dangle in front of James Holland yeah, to, yeah. to bring him over to fighting on film, it would have been an Errol Flynn film. Um, but we were... And, and, and it worked. I fell for a hood on the sinker. <laughs> Fantastic. So Matt, anything you'd like to add before we wrap up? Yeah. Um, it's really interesting that it's it's a film set in Burma. The controversy around it is is interesting, but for me, it's it's a... It's one of Flynn's best films. I, I love the nuance he brings. And I love that it's it's a role that sort of frames that classic action man almost sort of role. Yeah. Um, there's the, the bit on the hill where he's blasting away with his M1A1 carbine. And it gives that sort of like very tight close up of his face. He's he's grimacing as he's firing and the, the Japanese waves coming in. It's just a, a great climax to the movie. Yeah. Um, but yes, I'm so glad we did it because there's a few fl- Flynn films I'd love to cover on the pod and I'm sure we will eventually. Of course. Um, but yeah, it's a great one. It's a brilliant film. It's brilliant. It's a great one. And we were, Very good. Yeah, and we were really pleased, um, thankful for James for coming on. Just amazing to talk to the great man. <laughs> oh, the, the, and if you, stop it. And if, you, <laughs> and if you haven't read his book, Burma 44, or anything by James Holland, please seek him out. You will not be disappointed. So. Indeed. Um, wrapping up again don't forget to drop the pod a like a share a subscribe write us a review on whatever podcast app you're listening on check us out on fightingonfilm.com we also have a facebook page fighting on film you'll find us there and on twitter at fighting on film and we will catch you again in the next one so thanks to james again well thank you for having me on thank you for suggesting it it was a treat our pleasure thanks so much james bye-bye everybody all the best bye cheerio Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. 
Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.